first off, your provider should be able to do a projection before the noticed values even come out. So for our clients, we we provide projections either at the end of the year for the following year or very early in that year so that they have an idea before we even get started. Hey, this is what the market's looking like. Here's where we think you can be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Jeanette Robinson, a Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. And today with us, we have Josh Estes. Josh is joining us technically in New Mexico right now, but he's from Dallas, Texas. He is the managing shareholder of Estes and Gandhi PC. Typically, his clients actually range from property owners to single family property owners, all the way up to large REITs. And his specialty is actually in property tax. So I'm sure that you're going to be interested in what he has to share. Last but not least, he is also, in addition to that, the chair of IPT's property tax school. He actually joined the faculty first and then moved into the chair role where he's able to help educate and inspire, I'm sure, the younger generation moving into this career path. And his family, as I mentioned, is from Dallas, Texas. And he received his law degree from the University of Texas School of Law. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Yeah, I appreciate it, Jeanette. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I definitely appreciate it. Sure thing. Sure thing. Sorry for that last minute change of plans. It's just way too hot. (laughs) I have to get out. I don't blame you one bit. Not one bit. I'm up in Boston myself. And it's uh, surprisingly toasty. I thought being a former Texas girl, I'd have no problem with it. But the humidity is a different kind of beast out here. So I'm not making fun of New Englanders for complaining about being hot anymore. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I've been a little converted. I know. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So Josh, now I know that some people might think, oh, property tax, yawn. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, I have someone that deals with that. But it's definitely an important topic that people don't realize they can probably influence a lot more than they do, right? Yeah, that's definitely a true statement. Our best prospects are people who just think, oh, well, someone's handling this. I don't even need to think about it. And they're they're usually very surprised about what we can do. In property tax, just as a quick background, you're paying a tax based on the value of your property. Okay. And so generally speaking, you the property owner does not have the opportunity to go in and argue about the tax rate. 
What you do have the opportunity to do is go in and try to influence the valuation. That's the basis for your tax. And so that's really our function. We go in, argue that for you know lots of different reasons, the value of the property should be lower. And ultimately that results in a lower tax bill. So lower tax bill, more NOI, more money flowing through to investors, more money utilized at sale. So all of those are, are very, very good things. Indeed. I always like that. Well, good. You know, to kind of stick with our structure of asset process and strategy from the standpoint of property tax, first and foremost, I'm curious, are there certain assets that are more challenging than other assets? Sure. That's definitely true. We have done single family residences in the past. Surprisingly, they can be very challenging in a lot of ways. We don't really do them much anymore because what we like to focus on is being able to tell a a bigger story. And the different types of asset classes that we handle all present different opportunities, but different challenges. Of course, we do multifamily. So in multifamily, one of the challenges there is that a lot of the value is the real estate itself. Compare that to something like a, a hotel property, where when you look at a hotel sale, you think, oh, well, sure, that's the value. But that transaction price really represents not only the value of the real estate, but also the value of the business that transacted with it. And so going in and making an accurate and defensible allocation of the business value versus the real estate value is an important and challenging part of it. Now, coming back to something like apartments, the assessor's office would have you believe that there is no business value in apartments. But I know from looking at investments that different operators, are some operators are much more profitable than the operator that's just around the corner. The assets are the same, but one's making more money. So obviously there is a business value there. We often see operators who are not pushing their rent rates. And when that happens, you have negative value. Someone comes in and looks at it as a value add. But if it's the value add, there's, there really isn't a whole lot of business value in the existing asset. What the buyer is trying to do is, is add that value to it. And so it's that can be very challenging to get assessors and review boards to agree with you on those things. But it's a similar challenge for, for all types of commercial asset classes because by its very nature, commercial real estate is held for the production of income. And that's a business. So you have to address it. Wow, interesting. And absolutely, you know, here, of course, at Blue Lake, we love to focus on value add strategies. So I can certainly appreciate what you're talking about when, you know, there can be a a tremendous difference between the value of one business versus another, even if they are, you know, utilizing the same asset or, you know, assessing the same asset. Very solid point, in my opinion. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, kind of on that note and moving in towards, you know, the process point of the discussion, I know that you mentioned and shared with me earlier before we started recording that one of the things that's very different and interesting about kind of your approach is that you can actually review the performance of properties to nearby competitors because it's actually something that is measurable. And so can you kind of just, you know, share a little bit more about that with us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Property tax representation is not a commodity service where you just check the box. I have someone changing the light bulbs. I have someone protesting the property taxes. It's not like that at all. There are a couple of ways to measure your performance against your competitors. One of the easiest ways to do that when you acquire a property, 
most investors have some sort of debt component and there's an appraisal that you get to support that debt. When you get the appraisal, you'll see comps that that appraiser has used to come up with the value for the subject property. And you can actually go look up the assessed value for each one of those comps. And so you might have comp number one, it sold for $80 million, but it's only assessed at 60 million. Okay, they're on for 75% of their of their sale price. Next one might be 80%, next one might be 68%, so on and so forth. After you go through your first reassessment cycle, you can look at that and say, well, I'm being assessed at 85 or 90% of my transaction price. So that tells me there's an opportunity there to go in. And depending on the jurisdiction, you can either file a lawsuit to try to get that further lowered. Some jurisdictions don't have that opportunity. So you have to go and just make a change for next year and and try to change your strategy as to how you're confronting the property tax issue. But that is a really effective way of measuring yourself. In the absence of something like that, like an appraisal, you can also just pick out your competitors. And this can this can be very effective as well because every month, every property management package has a list of who are the comps that you see mentioned when potential lessees come in and talk to you about leasing your own property. So they're saying, oh, I'm considering this one and this one, this one. Well, a, g- a good leasing manager is going to go identify those properties, find out what they're asking rents on. You can then go look up the assessed value per unit of those properties and compare that to yours. If they are getting a lower tax bill, that's something you want to look at. If, if you are getting a lower tax bill than them, then you maybe you want to send your property tax guy a bonus or a nice Christmas present. <laughs> So it's a, it's a really objective way of comparing where you stand and the performance of your property tax management program. But those are two really effective ways. Obviously, if you're in conversations with your your folks, then they're going to be able to tell you, hey, here's, here's the way we see the market. Here's the way we see your assessments. But those are two ways that are independent that a commercial real estate owner can, can go in and just look at objective data and say, where do I stand? Interesting. Interesting. Now I'm curious, and you know, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head or not, but percentage wise, you know, typically how often are commercial property owners successful in getting their property taxes reduced? It would be very unusual not. So in most jurisdictions across the United States, there's a process by which the assessor notifies you of what their opinion is on the value. And then the property owner has the opportunity to come in and say, well, I think it should be lower for whatever reason. Very, very common, 90 plus percent that a property owner who goes in with a good argument will get a reduction of some sort. So it's it's very unusual to look at a property value and say, I don't think there's anything we can do with this by its very nature, especially in jurisdictions that have robust equity provisions. By that, I mean... Not only can a property owner argue their market value is lower, they can also argue, hey, maybe maybe you have my market value correct, but you're taxing my competitors at a lower rate than you're taxing me. So I should be lower as well. In those jurisdictions, by the very nature of the situation, you're almost always going to have some adjustment available because everyone is in there protesting their values. So that equity number is going to come down. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now I'm curious, kind of still along those same lines, 
What would you say are some mistakes that you see people make when they are actually uh, essentially identifying, you know, someone to represent them, you know, in these types of matters? Well, we talked about the general idea that you just look at it as a commodity service. That's not it for sure. Now, assuming you've gotten beyond that, you've identified some potential service providers that you want to talk to. You definitely want to talk to the people who are actually going to be going into the assessor or the appraiser's office and arguing your case. You do not want to just talk to the marketing department. I mean, probably you talk to them at some point in the process, but when you're making a decision, you want to be talking to the folks who are actually going to be arguing the case. As you move through that process, you know, again, most jurisdictions, it's something that happens at least every three years. A lot of jurisdictions, it happens every year. Some jurisdictions, not so much. But every time you're going through that reassessment process, you need to be having a conversation with your folks. Of course, they're going to ask you for things like rent rolls, operating statements. But there are details that don't come through, very useful details that don't come through just from the financials. And so having a conversation about challenges that you're facing, maybe you've had a really good year, but you think that you might be at a high watermark for some reason, that situation is changing. All of these things are, are factors that can only be communicated through conversations with your service providers. And a lot of times people just send in their rent roll and their operating statement. and That's the end of it. That's not a good way to go. Interesting. And so kind of the reverse to that, are there any per se best practices that you would recommend that people can put into place in order to really optimize their relationship, you know, with the people that are essentially being service providers for them and providing these services, you know, and maybe also in the way that they're managing their finances or their records, you know, what would you say are some of the quote best practices of, you know, making sure that you really maximize your savings on property tax? Yeah, that's a great question. So three things. First off, your provider should be able to do a projection before the noticed values even come out. So for our clients, we we provide projections either at the end of the year for the following year or very early in that year so that they have an idea before we even get started. Hey, this is what the market's looking like. Here's where we think you can be. And that's useful for a couple of reasons. One, it gives you an, an idea of what is possible, but for accrual purposes, you don't want to be under or over accruing significantly. That's more on the operational side, but it's pretty disheartening when you get down to October or November and you find out that you've got a $200,000 escrow shortfall. I can tell by, by that look on your face that, I mean, everyone has been in that situation. And it's something that regardless of how the assessment process works, you can get in front of that. Having an accurate projection, you know, of course, as accurate as you can be. It's never going to be perfect. In fact, I, t- I always tell the clients, I can guarantee you one thing, that it will not be exactly this number. It's going to be <laughs> higher. It's going to be lower. But it, if I say that it's going to be that number, it's not going to be that number. But our projections are always much, much more accurate than the escrow department's projections. And so different providers have different ways of approaching that situation, but it's always useful to know at the beginning of the year. So that's one do a projection very early. Two, at the time when you send your rent rolls and T12s over to your provider, in addition to that, they should wanting to set up a conversation with you because 
the T12 is not going to tell anything about the competitor that's about to open next door, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to tell anything about the huge CapEx project that's coming up. It's not going to tell any of that. And because we're really doing an appraisal, everything that we're doing is, is forward-looking. And so while it's it's essential to look at what the past performance has been, we can't do an effective job of forecasting the future if we don't know about these issues that are going to affect the value. Increased competition in an area or a major employment change in an area, those are huge ones. And the only way that you're going to make your provider aware of that is by having a conversation. So that's usually a busy time of year. Providers are not always, I'm not going to sit here and say I absolutely beat everyone's door down every year to have that conversation. But that's something that, especially if you've identified issues like that, having a conversation over and above, here's my financials, is very useful. And then the last thing is having a conversation after the first appeal level. Because in, again, jurisdictions differ, but almost every jurisdiction in the United States has both an initial protest level and an appeal level. And many providers go in, they're focused on the first appeal level, they got a nice reduction, and that's it. And these appeal deadlines come pretty quickly. They can be as short as 30 days. Most of them are 60 to 90 days. But if you have a conversation at the end of the year, when you get your tax bill, in almost all circumstances, it's too late to, to appeal. So you might have got started with a notice value of $80 million. Your provider goes in, gets a cut to $70 million. Wow, that's a $10 million cut. That sounds pretty good. Well, the value, by the time the dust settles, you can see the value should have been $62 million. If you've missed your appeal deadline, sorry, mm-hmm. it, it's over. And so having a, conver- a review conversation during that review time period is critical. For these bigger assets, I would say that if you are never utilizing that second level appeal, then you're probably leaving some money on the table. And going back to what we talked about earlier, comparing your level of taxation to your either your leasing competitors or your sales comps from an appraisal, that's going to give you a really good idea of whether your, your current plan for dealing with the property taxes is effective. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, good. I hope everybody took a few notes there because I don't like leaving money on the table. I'm sure nobody else does either. (laughs) No, no. I mean, we always say we don't want to represent people who don't want to pay anything because the reality is that every property is worth something. Everyone, we're always going after the, the fair and equal value, but that's never zero. But at the same time, if you're paying more than your fair and equal required amount of tax, then really you're choosing to donate money. They may be worthy causes, but a lot of people have other causes they would rather donate to. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm curious, you know, given all of the challenges that we've got going on now in the economy, you know, inflation and obviously the increase in interest rates, how does that ultimately likely impact, you know, the value of property? So first, there are two competing sides of that coin. First, rent increases. Okay. If your effective gross income is going up, then obviously that's a very positive thing for the value of an asset. 
and we've seen amazing rent growth. Mm-hmm. I would guess median rent growth 20% over the last 12 to 18 months. Some places much higher than that. So that's pointing to higher values. However, we are now seeing the effects of increased rent, and that's increased expenses. We got to pay people more to work. We have to pay more for the materials that it takes to operate these things. So even though our EGI may be up significantly, the NOI is not up as much. So that's tempering. When I'm talking about increasing asset values, that's tempering that to some extent. Now, in the last two to three months, we've seen an additional hit, which is significant increases in the the debt rates. I just this morning read an article where it's $40 million multifamily deal. The buyer, they were under contract. They had gone hard on 700K and they walked it because, yeah, it's just the money that we were talking about 90 days ago is not the same as the money we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And so how does that impact the values? Well, I, I think we're going to see the values come down. And I think what we're ultimately going to see is that the real eye-popping values of the last 24 months are a big anomaly where we saw participants in the market projecting income based on the higher rents, but making purchase decisions based on the extremely low cap rates. And that's just historically, that's a blip and it's not going to continue. So I don't see us you know, going into some deep, dark place like 2009 or 2010. Am I allowed to say those those years yeah. on a podcast like this? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, the reality is, is that's a fear that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. But, you know, we're in very, very different place, you know, than we were at that time. I mean, very different, very. So no, it's totally, I'm glad that you did say it actually, because that's what people are concerned about. That's what's on their mind. And it's, it's reassuring to hear you know, experts, you know, people that are really, you know, close to the pulse of all of these types of, you know, different intricacies that come into investing for them to get reassurance, you know, from the right people that have basically the right experience and the right education to reassure people that there's no need to panic right now, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's no need to pay stupid money, Yeah, but there's also no need to panic and freak out. Now we're in this context, we're, we're focused more on multifamily. There are some asset classes that I don't think are as well positioned as multifamily, but you know those folks might have a little bit different ride. But we'll see. But I, I don't think we're headed toward huge revaluations and giant default numbers or anything like that. I think if anything, the pandemic proved that people still have to play, have a place to live, and for better or for worse, the governmental entities are not going to let people get evicted. Yes, very true. I do believe, you know, or I can say that I agree with you as well. Uh, I do think that being in multifamily right now is a very advantageous position for sure. You know, obviously I'm biased, of course, being that, you know, we focus exclusively on multifamily. So I will, you know, I'll admit that on my my own free accord here. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. But this has been very very helpful. Is there any other last tidbit of, you know, what you would give as, you know, kind of just really important advice or considerations people need to, you know, think about? You know, kind of the other side to what we have been talking about is the fact that values do go up. And so looking at evaluation notice that comes in 10% higher than last year, 
yes, that means your tax bill is going to go up. We don't want the tax bill to go up. We're going to fight it. But at the end of the day, you do want your asset value to go up. And to some extent, at least, those noticed values reflect the increase in asset values, which is a good thing. So it's, you know, the number is never zero. The number is never, I just don't want to pay any tax. But you don't want to pay more than you have to, for sure. And, and that number is a highly, highly subjective number. Definitely. Definitely. Good advice. Yes. And, and the appreciation is good. That is actually supposed to be kind of the objective at times, right? For yeah. most strategies. So very mm-hmm. fair point. The other side of the coin, right? Yeah. We don't want it to go the other way. Yeah, exactly. Or at least not too fast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, good. Well, Josh, we have arrived at what we call the lightning round questions, which is five questions that we ask every guest on the show. They are not hard, I promise. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So first and foremost, do you actually have a hobby and what is it? I do. A couple of hobbies. One, haven't been as active in it recently, but I love to run. So any distance from 5K to marathon, love it. Love chasing big goals. The other thing I like is whiskey. So (laughs) just all kinds of whiskey. Love trying new whiskeys, bourbon, scotch, all over the place. Nice. Little tidbits of the good life, which I think is is a great thing, right? All things in moderation Mm -hmm. and balance. It's great. Awesome. Okay. Now you should have saved that one because my next question is, what is something that most people don't know about you that you're okay, you know, to share? I used to want to be a professional musician and Mm. then I just had to go for a more exciting life and work in property tax instead. (laughs) My undergraduate degree is actually in music and I was a trumpet player and I performed classically and pop bands and stuff like that. So but didn't want to work nights. So. Well, that's cool. Still, that's neat. Do you ever play from time to time still? I'm really bad. It's, uh. it's awful and very discouraging. So I don't do it very often, no. <laughs> well, still very interesting. What about as far as a book? Are you currently reading anything that you think is really great? Or have you previously read something you would highly suggest people take a look into? So we homeschool our kids. And as they're coming to the end of their high school years, we've given them some assigned reading that's more life advice type reading. And one of the books on their list that I really enjoyed about 20 years ago was Your Money or Your Life. And there are, are you familiar with that one? No, I'm not. It sounds interesting. Yeah, it's really good. It's more, I, I would say the thesis is more about know what you're working for and know what you want out of life. And don't let your life get planned for you. You know, if you don't plan your life, someone's going to plan it for you. But being conscious of your life energy and how you're choosing to use it. Hmm, Fascinating. Very neat. All right. Very cool. All right. And this one is a big one. So what would you say is your advice for living an extraordinary life? Oh, you know, you asked me this a couple months ago. And I think something that is central is don't get hung up on stuff you can't control. If you can't control it, it doesn't matter how much you worry about it. If you take that that energy and focus it on the things you can control, you're going to see a much, much bigger return. I certainly understand the criticism of that statement that we all have responsibilities bigger than just 
stuff that we can control. And, but I think in general, people spend a lot more time worrying about stuff that ultimately they can't do anything about. Turning that effort toward the things that you can exert control over or influence at least is a much more much more useful way to spend time. That's not something that I came up with, of course. That's Stephen Covey's central thesis of his book. So, but I, I, it's something that I have found to be very useful. Certainly, definitely adds more to uh, peace of mind, which of course adds to quality of life. Yeah, I think it's good advice. Very good advice. All right. And now last but not least, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they contact you? I'm on LinkedIn. Our company's website is estesgandhi.com. Uh, it's my last name, Estes, E-S-T-E-S. And my partner's last name is Gandhi, G-A-N-D-H-I.com. And there are some resources there. We Most of our prospects end up finding us. So there's not a lot of grabby things. But if you want to reach out, we're available by phone, email, or LinkedIn. So, All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time to share, you know, your experience and your advice with us. You know, it may not always be the most sexy and exciting topic on the planet, but no. it's a very important one, right? You know, okay. You mentioned right at the end of my bio, the property tax school, and that I just finished teaching that this week. We offer it one week a year. And I think that's one of the most fun things about that week is seeing all of the participants in the school come to the property tax school. They're with hundreds of other people who do property tax. And they're like, oh, wow, there are other people who think this is very interesting. I mean, all we do every day is talk about real estate value. What what makes it go up? What makes it go down? And to me, there isn't much more interesting than that. But, you know, everybody thinks their thing is the best. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. And you know what? We're all better for it because we need everyone, you know, to be able to come together and have their different strengths, you know, their different interests, their different expertise. And that's what I think is one of the things that's really great about real estate in general is, you know, it really is a collective effort and a team effort. And there isn't success without having each and every one of those critical pieces or people, you know, at the table. So, you know, I'm glad that you're into it. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, but I'm glad that you are. <laughs> Well, we can tell some good stories over some whiskey sometime. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. Well, thank you so much again for taking time to be here. And for those of you that tuned in today, thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show and let us know what you'd like to hear more of. And until then, in the words of Ellie, be bold, keep moving forward, and go build your own extraordinary life. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.